When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 82 The Honor and Glory of Whaling There are some enterprises in which a careful disorderliness is the true method. The more I dive into this matter of whaling and push my researches up to the very springhead of it, so much the more am I impressed with its great honorableness and antiquity, and especially when I find so many great demigods and heroes, prophets of all sorts, who one way or other have shed distinction upon it. I am transported with the reflection that I myself belong, though but subordinately, to so emblazoned a fraternity. The gallant Perseus, a son of Jupiter, was the first whaleman, and to the eternal honor of our calling be it said that the first whale attacked by our brotherhood was not killed with any sword intent. Those were the nightly days of our profession— when we only bore arms to succor the distressed, and not to fill men's lamp-feeders. Everyone knows the fine story of Perseus and Andromeda, how the lovely Andromeda, the daughter of a king, was tied to a rock on the sea-coast, and as Leviathan was in the very act of carrying her off, Perseus, the prince of whalemen, intrepidly advancing, harpooned the monster, and delivered and married the maid, It was an admirable artistic exploit, rarely achieved by the best harpooners of the present day, inasmuch as this leviathan was slain at the very first dart. And let no man doubt this archite story, for in the ancient Joppa, now Jaffa, on the Syrian coast, in one of the pagan temples there stood for many ages the vast skeleton of a whale which the city's legends and all the inhabitants asserted to be the identical bones of the monster that Perseus slew. When the Romans took Joppa, the same skeleton was carried to Italy in triumph. What seems most singular and suggestively important in the story is this. It was from Joppa that Jonah set sail. Akin to the adventure of Perseus and Andromeda indeed, by some supposed to be indirectly derived from it, is that famous story of St. George and the Dragon, which dragon I maintain to have been a whale, for in many old chronicles whales and dragons are strangely jumbled together and often stand for each other. Thou art as a lion of the waters and as a dragon of the sea, saith Ezekiel, hereby plainly meaning a whale. In truth, some versions of the Bible use that word itself. Besides, it would much subtract from the glory of the exploit had St. George but encountered a crawling reptile of the land, instead of doing battle with the great monster of the deep. Any man may kill a snake, but only a Perseus, a St. George, a coffin, have the heart in them to march boldly up to a whale. Let not the modern paintings of this scene mislead us, For though the creature encountered by that valiant whaleman of old is vaguely represented of a griffin-like shape, and though the battle is depicted on land and the saint on horseback, 
Yet, considering the great ignorance of those times, when the true form of the whale was unknown to artists, and considering that as in Perseus's case St. George's whale might have crawled up out of the sea on the beach, and considering that the animal ridden by St. George might have been only a large seal or seahorse, bearing all this in mind, it will not appear altogether incompatible with the sacred legend and ancientest drafts of the scene to hold this so-called dragon no other than the great Leviathan himself. In fact, placed before the strict and piercing truth, this whole story will fare like that fish, flesh, and fowl idol of the Philistines, Dagon by name, who being planted before the Ark of Israel, his horse's head and both the palms of his hands fell off from him, and only the stump or fishy part of him remained. Thus, then, one of our own noble stamp, even a whaleman, is the guardian of England, and by good rights we harpooners of Nantucket should be enrolled in the most noble order of St. George, and therefore let not the knights of that honorable company, none of whom, I venture to say, have ever had to do with a whale like their great patron, let them never eye a Nantucketer with disdain, since even in our woolen frocks and tarred trousers we are much better entitled to St. George's decoration than they. Whether to admit Hercules among us or not, Concerning this, I long remained dubious, for though according to the Greek mythologies that ancient Crockett and Kit Carson, that brawny doer of rejoicing good deeds, was swallowed down and thrown up by a whale, still, whether that strictly makes a whaleman of him, that might be mooted, it nowhere appears that he ever actually harpooned his fish, unless, indeed, from the inside. Nevertheless, he may be deemed a sort of involuntary whaleman, at any rate, the whale caught him. If he did not the whale, I claim him for one of our clan. But by the best contradictory authorities, this Grecian story of Hercules and the whale is considered to be derived from the still more ancient Hebrew story of Jonah and the whale, and vice versa. Certainly they are very similar. If I claim the demigod, then, why not the prophet? Nor do heroes, saints, demigods, and prophets alone comprise the whole role of our order. Our grand master is still to be named, for like royal kings of old times, we find the headwaters of our fraternity in nothing short of the great gods themselves. That wondrous oriental story is now to be rehearsed from the Shaster, which gives us the dread Vishnu, one of the three persons in the godhead of the Hindus, gives us this divine Vishnu himself for our Lord. Vishnu, who by the first of his ten earthly incarnations, has forever set apart and sanctified the whale. When Brahma, or the god of gods, saith the Shaster, resolved to recreate the world after one of its periodical dissolutions, he gave birth to Vishnu to preside over the work. But the Vedas, or mystical books, whose perusal would seem to have been indispensable to Vishnu before beginning the creation, and which therefore must have contained something in the shape of practical hints to young architects. These Vedas were lying at the bottom of the waters. So Vishnu became incarnate in a whale, and sounding down in him to the uttermost depths, rescued the sacred volumes. Was not this Vishnu a whaleman then? Even as a man who rides a horse is called a horseman, 
Perseus, St. George, Hercules, Jonah, and Vishnu. There's a member role for you. What club but the Whalemans can head off like that? Chapter 83 Jonah, Historically Regarded Reference was made to the historical story of Jonah and the whale in the preceding chapter. Now, some Nantucketers rather distrust this historical story of Jonah and the whale. But then, there were some skeptical Greeks and Romans who, standing out from the Orthodox pagans of their times, equally doubted the story of Hercules and the whale, and Orion and the dolphin. And yet their doubting those traditions did not make those traditions one whit the less facts for all that. One old Sag Harbor whaleman's chief reason for questioning the Hebrew story was this. He had one of those quaint, old-fashioned Bibles, embellished with curious, unscientific plates, one of which represented Jonah's whale with two spouts in his head, a peculiarity only true with respect to a species of the Leviathan, the right whale, and the varieties of that order, concerning which the fishermen have this saying, a penny roll would choke him. His swallow is so very small. But to this Bishop Jeb's anticipative answer is ready. It is not necessary, hints the bishop, that we consider Jonah as tombed in the whale's belly, but as temporarily lodged in some part of his mouth. And this seems reasonable enough in the good bishop. For truly, the right whale's mouth would accommodate a couple of whist tables and comfortably seat all the players. Possibly, too, Jonah might have ensconced himself in a hollow tooth. But on second thoughts, the right whale is toothless. Another reason which Sag Harbor, he went by that name, urged his want of faith in this matter of the prophet, was something obscurely in reference to his incarcerated body and the whale's gastric juices. But this objection likewise falls to the ground, because a German exegesist supposes that Jonah must have taken refuge in the floating body of a dead whale, even as the French soldiers in the Russian campaign turned their dead horses into tents and crawled into them. Besides, it has been divined by other continental commentators that when Jonah was thrown overboard from the Joppa ship, he straightway effected his escape to another vessel nearby, some vessel with a whale for a figurehead, and I would add, possibly called the whale, as some craft are nowadays christened the shark, the gull, the eagle. Nor have there been wanting learned exegesis who have opined that the whale mentioned in the book of Jonah merely meant a life preserver, an inflated bag of wind, which the endangered prophet swam to, and so was saved from a watery doom. Poor Sag Harbor, therefore, seems worsted all round. But... He had still another reason for his want of faith. It was this, if I remember right. Jonah was swallowed by the whale in the Mediterranean Sea, and after three days he was vomited up somewhere within three days' journey of a city on the Tigris, very much more than three days' journey across the nearest point of the Mediterranean coast. How was that? But there was no other way for the whale to land the prophet within that short distance? Yes, he might have carried him round by the way of the Cape of Good Hope, but not to speak of the passage through the whole length of the Mediterranean, and another passage up the Persian Gulf and Red Sea, 
Such a supposition would involve the complete circumnavigation of all Africa in three days, not to speak of the Tigris waters being too shallow for any whale to swim in. Besides, this idea of Jonah's weathering the Cape of Good Hope at so early a day would rest the honor of the discovery of that great headland from Bartholomew Diaz, its reputed discoverer, and so make modern history a liar. But all these foolish arguments of old Sag Harbor only evinced his foolish pride of reason, a thing still more reprehensible in him, seeing that he had but little learning except what he had picked up from the sun and the sea. I say it only shows his foolish, impious pride, an indomitable, devilish rebellion against the reverend clergy. For by a Portuguese Catholic priest, this very idea of Jonah's going via the Cape of Good Hope was advanced as a signal magnification of the general miracle. And so it was. Besides, to this day, the highly enlightened Turks devoutly believe in the historical story of Jonah, and some three centuries ago an English traveler in old Harris's voyages speaks of a Turkish mosque built in honor of Jonah, in which mosque was a miraculous lamp that burnt without any oil. Chapter 84. Pitch Poling To make them run easily and swiftly, the axles of carriages are anointed, and for much the same purpose some whalers perform an analogous operation upon their boat— they grease the bottom. Nor is it to be doubted that as such a procedure can do no harm, it may possibly be of no contemptible advantage, considering that oil and water are hostile, that oil is a sliding thing, and that the object in view is to make the boat slide bravely. Queequeg believed strongly in anointing his boat, and one morning not long after the German ship Jungfrau disappeared, took more than customary pains in that occupation crawling under its bottom where it hung over the side and rubbing in the unctuousness as though diligently seeking to ensure a crop of hair from the craft's bald keel. He seemed to be working in obedience to some particular presentiment, nor did it remain unwarranted by the event. Towards noon, whales were raised, but so soon as the ship sailed down to them, they turned. They turned and fled with swift precipitancy, a disordered flight, as of Cleopatra's barges from Actium. Nevertheless, the boats pursued, and Stubbs was foremost. By great exertion, Tashtigo at last succeeded in planting one iron. But the stricken whale, without it all sounding, still continued his horizontal flight with added fleetness. Such unintermitted strainings upon the planted iron must sooner or later inevitably extract it, it became imperative to lance the flying whale or be content to lose him. But to haul the boat up to his flank was impossible. He swam so fast and furious. What then remained? Of all the wondrous devices and dexterities, the sleights of hand and countless subtleties to which the veteran whaleman is so often forced, none exceed that fine maneuver with the lance called pitch-poling, Small sword or broadsword, in all its exercises, boasts nothing like it. It is only indispensable with an inveterate running whale. Its grand fact and feature is the wonderful distance to which the long lance is accurately darted from a violently rocking, jerking boat under extreme headway. 
steel and wood included, the entire spear some ten or twelve feet in length. The staff is much slighter than that of the harpoon, and also of a lighter material. Pine. It is furnished with a small rope called a warp, of considerable length, by which it can be hauled back to the hand after darting. But before going further, it is important to mention here that though the harpoon may be pitch-pulled in the same way with the lance, yet it is seldom done, and when done, is still less frequently successful, on account of the greater weight and inferior length of the harpoon as compared with the lance, which, in effect, become serious drawbacks. As a general thing, therefore, you must first get fast to a whale before any pitch-pulling comes into play. Look now at Stubb, a man who from his humorous, deliberate coolness and equanimity in the direst emergencies was specially qualified to excel in pitch-pulling. Look at him. He stands upright in the tossed bow of the flying boat, wrapped in fleecy foam. The towing whale is forty feet ahead, handling the long lance lightly, glancing twice or thrice along its length to see if it be exactly straight. Stubb, whistlingly, gathers up the coil of the warp in one hand so as to secure its free end in his grasp, leaving the rest unobstructed. Then holding the lance full before his waistband's middle, he levels it at the whale. When covering him with it, he steadily depresses the butt-end in his hand, thereby elevating the point till the weapon stands fairly balanced upon his palm, fifteen feet in the air. He minds you, somewhat of a juggler, balancing a long staff on his chin. Next moment, with a rapid, nameless impulse, in a superb lofty arch, the bright steel spans the foaming distance and quivers in the life-spot of the whale. Instead of sparkling water, he now spouts red blood. "'That drove the spigot out of him,' cried Stubb. "'Tis July's immortal fourth. All fountains must run wine today. Would now, if it were old Orleans whiskey, or old Ohio, or unspeakable old Mongahela, then Tashtigo, lad, I'd have ye hold a canakin to the jet, and we'd drink round it. Yea, verily, hearts alive, we'd brew choice punch in the spread of his spout hole there, and from that live punch bowl quaff the living stuff. Again and again to such gamesome talk, the dexterous dart is repeated, the spear returning to its master like a greyhound held in skillful leash. The agonized whale goes into his flurry, the tow-line is slackened, and the pitch-poler dropping astern folds his hands and mutely watches the monster die. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.